There is no doubt that one of the most famous men in the entire world is a musician, a singer-songwriter by the name of Paul McCartney. It's hard to think of another musician whose face and name is, is more familiar uh, to musicians and music fans all around the globe. And his life has been an extraordinary one. And uh, he is now the source of a very uh, uh, carefully crafted uh, full-length biography, which is called Fab, An Intimate Life of Paul McCartney. And uh, it's written by Howard Soons, the author of several different nonfiction books, including, interestingly, uh, an outstanding biography of uh, Bob Dylan. And uh, Howard Soons prides himself on uh, doing very, very careful and original research. So uh, there is nothing uh, simple and, uh, and lazy in the way that he goes about crafting these biographies. And indeed, uh, he set about to write... Uh, a biography far more uh, detailed and comprehensive than any that has uh, ever been written. And uh, he has achieved that quite impressively. The book is published by Da Capo Press, and I'm very excited to be able to speak with uh, the author, Howard Soons. The, the name of the book again, Fab, An Intimate Life of Paul McCartney. Howard Soons, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you, Greg. In the acknowledgments, you spell out... Uh, what you were interested in doing. And one of the things that struck me is that you, you very specifically said that you were not uh, going after this with a particular agenda of finding fault or sort of simply glorifying his career. You were obviously after something else, I mean, interested in a higher purpose than that. Explain what was your strongest goal in, in this book. Well, I think I want to entertain the reader, most of all. So I don't want to get in the way of the story. And the story should speak for itself. And the true character of Paul McCartney should emerge through the facts of his life and the testimony of his, of his contemporaries. So that, that, that's, that's what I mean, really. I'm hoping that the book reads well, almost like a novel, really, that you want to know what happens next. You tell us that you interviewed... 220 different people. Uh, give us some sense of what kind of people we are talking about. Well, they, they range um, largely, uh, enormously rather, uh, from celebrities, fellow musicians, people like Pete Townsend and Ravi Shankar, to uh, girlfriends, members of his family, people he went to school with, neighbors, uh, his vet, you know, the vet that looks after the McCartney animals, um, business associates, um, band members. I try and speak to everyone I can. Not everybody will speak to you, but um, you, I'm always surprised by how many people do speak. And the idea is to really get as many different perspectives as possible and, uh, and let those people tell the story to a large extent. One thing that is uh, might be uh, surprising to some people is that you did uh, as much traveling as you did. I mean, traveling to many of the places that have been important to Paul McCartney throughout his life. Uh, tell us kind of the, the tangible ways in which you think this was helpful to you in the creation of this book. Well, uh, most uh, rock biographies I actually think are very bad. There's an awful lot of, of books that are just written from cuttings, from newspaper cuttings and from previous books. Now, I do, I 
read all the cuttings as well, and I do read all the previous books, and sometimes I quote from them if they're particularly good or valuable. That's the way that non-fiction is always done. Biography is always based upon previous biography. That's the, the, that's the building block of, of how non-fiction um, is created. But uh, as much as possible, I try to get some original information, and that's partly done by interviews, but it's partly done also by um, records, documentation, and by going to everywhere where the subject has lived and meeting, you know, meeting the neighbours, looking at the landscape, visiting the, the restaurants, the bars that the person uses. So you start to sort of think like the person. You start to feel like you're in their shoes. And so when I talk about Paul McCartney's ranch in Arizona, for instance, which is an important place in his story, it's important that I've been there and I've had a feeling for what it's like. And similarly, the farm in Scotland or his house in London. Um, and uh, you can't um, make those things up, really. You have to go there and see them. And so with, a like, with somebody like Sir Paul, who's a very wealthy man and has homes all over the world and lives an international life, there is a good deal of traveling that takes place. For all the places he has been, uh, one of the central themes of uh, the first part of the book is how important Liverpool was to him, and in a sense, how much Liverpool was sort of lodged in the in the very uh, heart of his soul, and uh, and and one gets the sense that uh, that that heart of his soul has remained with him all these years. What is it about the Liverpool about Liverpool and its people uh, that? made such a, a strong uh, impression on Paul McCartney or, or most profoundly uh, influenced who he grew up to be? Well, I, I think it, it wouldn't really matter where he was from, if he was from London or from uh, Hibbing, Minnesota, like Bob Dylan. Wherever you're from is always important, and you never forget your childhood memories, um, family experiences. Uh, they're always, they, they, they stay with you throughout life, especially for a creative artist. It just so happened he was born in Liverpool. He is very sentimental about Liverpool, and Liverpool does have a, a strong and distinctive character. It's, um, a, it's a port, of course. It's, it's a working-class city predominantly, and the inhabitants are, generally speaking, friendly, gregarious, um, sociable. Uh, they're, they're said to be witty um, uh, characters, and he's, he is all of that. He's a friendly, gregarious man. But, of course, John Lennon was a Liverpudlian, and he wasn't a particularly friendly or gregarious man. He was quite a different personality. So these things can be oversimplified. But certainly he's very sentimental about Liverpool, uh, and he often he goes back there a lot, and he always refers to it in his interviews. And being a working-class Liverpudlian is a big part of, of how he sees himself. But, of course, he's become a much different person. He's become an international person, a man of great wealth and power and sophistication. Hmm. Among the events which were important to him was the untimely death of, of his mother in 1956 uh, at the age of, of 47. And, um, and uh, you tell us that uh, perhaps the single most important way in which young Paul dealt with this trauma, this tragedy, was uh, in turning to music uh, in a very uh, powerful way. 
Uh, yes, well, that's certainly true. Um, I, I mean, many of these things, of course, are well known, and I, I don't, uh, I, I'm not saying this as if it's a great revelation. I think most people who know the Beatles story know that Paul's mum died young and he turned to music. Um, the point of a biography like this is you have to, do, you have to cover all these bases, and, and I, I try to work through these early stories, these early anecdotes, which are vitally important, but they're very familiar. I try to work through them fairly quickly, um, they're all there, they're all covered, they're all told as well as I can. But you have to, I, I always bear in mind, this is a much bigger story. This is a 70-year life. Hmm. So by the time we get to the end of the Beatles, for instance, we're only halfway through. You know, the guy is, what, 30 years old. There's another whole life to lead. There's two marriages, there's five kids, there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen. So I don't get, I, I, I think a fault, uh, Greg, with previous lives of Paul is that they've got bogged down in that early stuff. It's Beatles, Hamburg, uh, Liverpool, you know, the cavern. Well, you, you can't get bogged down in that stuff. That's important, but you've got to keep moving. This is a long book because it's a long life. Right. And, and yes, you're, you're absolutely right that if one, uh, one opens up the book maybe, I don't know, a third of the way through, and we're already past the Beatles or, or in the very final stages of that group's existence. And yeah. you're absolutely right. It's kind of uh, bewildering at first. And then you realize, well, yes, there's all the years with Wings yeah. and all his solo work and all that comes after. And that's a long time ago that the Beatles broke up. It's, uh, yeah, it's a long time ago. And a lot's happened since then. And it's important. But it's, it's, it's in, the, in my book, it's half the book. The book is called Fab, of course. Fab been, been shortened version of fabulous, and they were the Fab Four. And I think it's true. It's also true to say that Paul has lived a fab life, uh, a life of great achievement, as I say, wealth, success. Um, he's done a lot. He's done a lot, and he's done a massive amount since the Beatles. Not all of it first rate, but my goodness me, he's been busy. Uh, he's a busy guy, and um, there's a lot of there's a lot of work there to talk about and examine. Absolutely. Uh, if you would permit me, one thing about uh, these years with the Beatles, uh, a story that I didn't remember hearing. Uh, well, first of all, one of the things that's I, I, I learned a lot actually about sort of the formation of the Beatles into the four that we think of. I mean, uh, I learned quite a lot about uh, uh, a couple of those men who were kind of part of the group in the very early going that ultimately were jettisoned for one reason or another. I loved one of the stories you tell about how Paul, when they were first being swept over by such, uh, such enthusiasm, when they had first gone on Sunday night at the London Palladium, I mean, when things really heated up for the Beatles, is the way in which he concocted elaborate escape routes from the Asher home where he was living much of the time. Would you mind just telling our listeners about this? Because yeah. you yourself say that, in a sense, this says a lot about the maelstrom of celebrity they found themselves in. It also says something about who Paul McCartney was. Uh, yes, well, it's, it's, a, it's like a scene out of A Hard Day's Night. He, he lived with the Ashers in a townhouse in central London, Wimpole Street, five-story house, very handsome house, the, the house where um, Elizabeth Barrett, sorry, the street where Elizabeth Barrett Browning lived some, you know, uh, in an earlier age, very august address. Um, and anyway, he, lived, he, had, a, a, he had the uh, attic room, and the kids, the Beatles fans, will gather outside, and they, essentially there's only one front door. And Paul, uh, Paul and Jane's dad and the guy next door who was a retired army man, a colonel, they, 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 they came to an arrangement whereby Paul would climb out of his window, 
creep ac- along the parapet, as you can imagine, in a sort of um, Dick Lester fashion, skinny young guy in black, co- across the parapet, climbs in the window of the, of the apartment next door, five stories up above the London um, skyline, um, says hello to the colonel next door, goes down in the lift uh, and exits through the back door of the house next door into the mews behind. This is obviously an old London house with a mews for the horses in the old days, and then disappears and evades the fans. And it's a funny story, um, and it, it, it demonstrates, I think, uh, Greg, that um, Paul is somebody who gets on with people because obviously the neighbours liked him. Uh, they, wanted to, they wanted to help him, and that's still true. You know, If you go to places where Paul lives now, as I say, a big place in Arizona, Scotland, London, Sussex, all over Los Angeles. He has homes all over the world, New York. Um, generally speaking, the neighbours know him and like him, and, he's, and he has gone out of his way to meet them and endear himself to them. So, for instance, if he wants to drive in and out of his ranch in Arizona now, he doesn't have to go through the front gate. He can drive across the guy next door's land because they've come to that arrangement, and that way he can avoid people like me. <laughs> which I, I guess is part of the point, you know? Right, exactly. Um, you, of course, tell us about the, the glory years and ultimately the demise of the Beatles and remind us that uh, at the end, Paul McCartney was really hoping that the Beatles would go on. Uh, you tell us that, that he had the idea that maybe they should begin touring again in smaller venues and rediscover the magic they had uh, enjoyed at, at, at the very outset of their collective careers. It was John Lennon who really brought the curtain down quite quite abruptly. Paul yeah, McCartney I, would have been happy yeah. to go on. I think so. I, I, maybe like the Rolling Stones, go on indefinitely. Uh, because as Tony Bramwell says in my book, Fab, Paul was the most Beatley Beatle. He was the one that really loved being a Beatle. And I'm sure did everything he could to hold it together and would have loved to have kept going. Um, and uh, But John... Uh, just sort of lost interest, really, lost interest in the band, and um, I think lost interest in Paul, rather as John did with his first wife, Cynthia, and his child by Cynthia, Juliet. He just got to a point in his life where he just wasn't interested in those people anymore and cut them off and wanted to lead this new life with Yoko. Um, And uh, Paul was part of his past and of no real interest to him anymore. And and clearly he didn't like him by that point. Uh, He resented him, I think. Hmm. So, in a book that's over 600 pages long, at page 267, the Beatles are over. <laughs> just to reiterate the fact that there is much more to this book than just uh, Paul McCartney as uh, a Beatle. For 40 years thereafter, he is a former Beatle, but much more than that. You tell us about the formation of uh, his next band, which is called Wings. And one of the things that I appreciated about uh, the way you craft this part of the story is you really help us appreciate the amazing sort of pressure that, uh, that Paul McCartney felt, or, or certainly the extraordinary scrutiny uh, which he and his bandmates were uh, were undergoing at this moment as the whole world wondered what is this new group going to be like are they going to be anything like the beatles or will this be an utterly new kind of musical uh experience yes um i, I mean paul tried to uh, make wings a small band to start with he tried to start in a low-key way playing small gigs in universities just turning up unannounced and recording records quite quickly in an almost um, 
amateurish way, really. Um, but, of course, the pressure of expectation was huge. And, and, of course, Wings did become huge, didn't they, especially in America. I mean, they were a very big band in America, bigger than they were ever here, of course. Uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, predominant themes here, uh, of course, during the Beatles years, and certainly during, uh, especially the early years with Wings, was Paul McCartney's marijuana use, and not just him, of course, but everybody uh, in this band. Uh, help us understand the significance of this in terms of of what he was accomplishing in these years, and what sort of tangible effect that had on who he was, and particularly what kind of a musician he was in these years? Well, um, marijuana smoking has been a big part of his life ever since Bob Dylan turned him on to dope at, uh, in New York um, in the mid-60s. And it seems to have had a, a deleterious, uh, if that's the right word, effect upon his music making. Um, uh, many producers say in Fab that it's been frustrating to work with Paul, partly because when he's sitting around smoking a joint and mucking about with his guitar, he can jam almost endlessly to no real effect and doesn't come to a point and can't decide what the best take of a song is and that sort of thing. And that all becomes a bit boring for the producers and I think possibly has resulted in some rather wishy-washy albums with some weak tracks on them, especially since, well, certainly after the Beatles that's true. So I think that's a bit of a problem, really. And, of course, it's also got him into a great deal of problems with the police. Um, I think he's been busted now in six countries, which is quite a record, really, and puts him in the same kind of uh, rackety rock and roll company as someone like Keith Richards. So it's quite at odds with um, his other, the other side of his public persona. Now, he seems, now, this is all in the past, of course. He doesn't get busted these days. But even recently, during his fiasco of a second marriage, one of Heather's many complaints about Paul was that he was always smoking dope and, um, and she didn't come from the same generation and she really very much looked down upon uh, drug taking, thought it was a terrible thing to do. And this was a, call, a cause of their rows. Of course, they rowed about many things, but that was one of them. Hmm. Uh, you tell us at one point in the book about Paul McCartney's anus horribilis, which, of course, is a, a term we more, more quickly associate with uh, the current Queen of England, referring to a, a particular calendar year in which uh, the House of Windsor uh, was buffeted by all kinds of, of heartache and disasters, including a, a terrible fire. Uh, tell our listeners about Paul McCartney's anus horribilis. Well, uh, you're going to have to help me, uh, Greg, because uh, I, mean, I know how it ends, but how does it begin? Uh, uh, with a, uh, uh, the, uh, a major Japanese tour scheduled for January of 1980, oh, of yeah. yes. Yeah, so that was a bad year. So he was due to, 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 to tour with Wings in Japan, and of course he gets busted going into Japan because they find dope in his luggage. So that was really a bad start. Uh, the tour is scrapped. He goes to jail. He spends nine nights in the Japanese police cell, which is by far the most serious uh, problem he's ever had with drugs. And he was lucky not to actually have a, long, have a proper longer sentence. So he's basically kicked out of Japan, tours scrapped, wings collapses. And then, of course, other things um, go wrong during the year. But at the end of the year, of course, um, John is, is murdered. Now, and... I think Anna's horribilis for Paul, of course, because despite the fact they were estranged, his best friend, really, in life, was now gone. Um, 
there was no hope ever of resurrecting the Beatles properly. And, of course, he made a bit of a, um, a cock-up, as we would say in England, a bit of a cock-up of his comment when John died, his public comment. Interviewed outside a recording studio in London, he said, it's a drag, i.e. John's death, it's a drag. And he was chewing gum at the time. He didn't look particularly upset by it all. And I think it was he was widely condemned for that and um, ill-chosen words. Mm. And there are other troubles that are ahead for Paul McCartney in uh, in the early 1980s of, of one kind or another. At some point, uh, Paul McCartney begins to write his course, maybe we can say, and uh, and really begins to uh, achieve some some greatness again, and certainly seems to achieve at least some measure of of balance uh, and happiness in his in his personal life. Uh, describe uh, to whatever extent this is true uh, how Paul McCartney begins to surmount some of the troubles that dogged him in this period. Well, the first, uh, if we're talking about women, the first marriage to Linda is a great success, really. And, and of course, he, he marries Linda at the end of the Beatles period, and that marriage lasts until her death. Now, that was a great success, and they were they were successful parents, and his family life has been notably successful, although his daughter, Heather, isn't perhaps the happiest of people. Uh, um, the second marriage, of course, is a, is a disaster. It's a, it's a fiasco. It, it must go down in history as one of the worst uh, marriages in the history of matrimony, I would have thought, um, uh, uh, if, that, if that answers your question. Right. Um, there is a whole chapter which is devoted to something called the three-quarters reunion. And uh, this is, of course, uh, an intriguing moment in McCartney's career when he uh, is, to some extent at least, reunited with uh, his surviving bandmates from uh, the Beatles. Tell us what this uh, uh, professional experience uh, meant to Paul McCartney. Well, I think, again, he enjoyed it more than the others. This is the anthology. Um, my sources are that this was done, the anthology project, i.e. The, the TV documentary, the, 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 the CD compilations and the, the DVD and all that sort of thing, the book. This was done primarily to give George Harrison some money because George Harrison had lost a lot of money uh, with the collapse of handmade films, which, he, which had been a bit of a financial disaster. Um, and George had never made as much money as John or Paul, because, of course, he hadn't written as many songs. Um, Ringo certainly hadn't made as much either. So it was a way of giving the boys what I'm told, in quotes, was some serious money, which Paul had by the bucket load. Um, and I think my information is, of course, he enjoyed the anthology, he enjoyed making those songs, which were based upon uh, demos that, that John had left behind, the two songs they released, um, and wanted to keep going, wanted to keep doing it, wanted to do more of it. But George, although it was done primarily to, to help George out financially, George then kind of lost interest and didn't want to do any more. So there was going to be another single, but we never heard the third single. Um, I think, the, I mean, I think the anthology is wonderful. It's a wonderful um, piece of television. And the CDs are great, the three long, the three double uh, CD sets. They're wonderful. But personally, I think the actual new songs, Real Love and Free as a Bird, I think they are undoubtedly disappointing and possibly a bit of a shame that they, they that, that was the last word on the Beatles. Best that they left, 
let they let they left the Beatles canon alone. I think because hmm. they are they are obviously second rate. They're not in the first rank of Beatles songs. And of course, uh, when one thinks about Paul McCartney, really in 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 many respects, what he is better at than anything is is as a composer. I mean, the best of what he has composed are among the finest songs of his time. Yes, but uh, but he, but with the caveat though, he's a he's a much better melody, uh, melody writer than he is a lyricist. I mean, the lyrics are patchy. Some lyrics are, are great. Penny Lane, the end. Um, some lyrics, high, high, high. I'm going to give. Gonna, I'm going to do it to you, baby, all night long. I'm going to do it to you like a rabbit. Give you my big banana. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> really terrible. And that's a great paradox and a, and a conundrum. Um, his career, really. There's a big question mark over Paul McCartney's career. How is it possible this man? Uh, was such a large part of the Beatles, who were so wonderful, and we all love the Beatles, and yet after the Beatles, he does stuff like High, 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 which is, which is poor, average to poor. Uh, and I, that's, a, that's a fascinating area of discussion. And in the book, you will hear, one will read various people um, who know him very well, you know, surmising, really, or discussing why this may be. That and much more found in the pages of this massive and carefully researched biography of Paul McCartney called Fab, An Intimate Life of Paul McCartney. It is published by Da Capo Press and its author, Howard Soons. Howard Soons, I have appreciated uh, this opportunity to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg.